Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. It was the morning of the 10th of January 1954, and a British Overseas Airways Corporation aircraft took off from Rome. Its destination was London, and the weather was mild. There were 29 passengers and 6 crew on board. At 10.50am it radioed that it was breaking through the overcast at 8,230 metres and it was climbing to a cruising altitude of 10,973 metres. Then the transmission was cut off, literally mid-sentence. It was like the plane just ceased to exist and there were no more transmissions. Then just off the coast of the island of Elba, a number of fishermen were repairing nets and they heard a sound like thunder and saw a shocking sight. Flaming wreckage was hurtling out of the clouds towards the sea. The fishermen went out to investigate, heading for where the fireball had landed. And when they got there, they found debris and bodies floating in the water. All were dead. But this wasn't just a plane crash. This was one of the plane crashes that would set in motion a series of events that would change the world of aviation. So what was this plane and and why is this crash so important? Well, the plane was called a Comet and it was made by the de Havilland Aircraft Company in the UK. And what makes the Comet so special was that it was the first commercial jet aircraft and it had been put into service in 1952 and it was a British aircraft because at the time the British were the world leaders in jet aviation. So why was this plane such a big deal? Well, up until this point, all commercial planes had been propeller planes. You know, think of the sort of aircraft you see in the footage from the Second World War. But this plane had jet engines. And a plane with jet engines was a great leap forward in terms of international travel because these planes could travel at twice the speed of a propeller plane. Now, to do this, they needed to also travel twice as high, around 12,000 metres high, so that they were travelling in the rarefied atmosphere. And there were some very good benefits from travelling so high. One was that the cold air temperature made the jet engines more efficient, and the other was that you were flying above the weather. In other words, you were flying above bad weather, like thunderstorms, so it removed a lot of uncertainty about flight scheduling. So this was a huge leap forward. But one of the challenges of flying at this sort of altitude is that you need to keep the air pressure inside the aircraft at the same levels that we're used to on the ground. And this is all about passenger crew comfort. But this meant that while up at these high altitudes, the inside air pressure of the aircraft had to be higher than the outside air pressure. In a sense, the passengers or crew were travelling inside an inflated balloon. Now, holding this balloon together was an aluminium skin that was 0.71 millimetres thick, so less than a millimetre. Now, you may think that's a little bit thin, but every single one of the comets put into service went through a pressure test to ensure that it could withstand this pressure by a comfortable margin. In other words, it was blown up while on the ground to make sure that it was structurally sound. So this was one really highly engineered piece of kit. But this highly engineered piece of kit had problems big problems. There had been a number of incidents during takeoff. One was non-fatal, but the second killed everyone on board. Now, the reason for these failures was believed to be the pilot attempting to rotate the nose of the plane before it had built up the required speed. In other words, pilot error was blamed for both of these. But then there was a third incident on the 2nd of May 1953, and this happened to be the first anniversary of the jet aircraft going into service. 
and a comet simply disintegrated just after takeoff from an airport in Calcutta in India. It simply disintegrated and it killed all 43 people on board. Now, the thing was, this incident occurred in a violent thunderstorm. That was what was blamed for the crash. Now, the view was the plane was probably subjected to higher forces than it was designed for and or it was due to the pilot trying to overcompensate when trying to control the aircraft in the thunderstorm. So that was it. You know, it was either severe weather or pilot error. They found nothing to suggest that there was anything systematically wrong with the comet. So then we come to Rome eight months later where we began this story. And it's the 10th of January 1954 when a comet crashes at Elba, killing 35 people on board. Now on this day over Elba, there was no bad weather to blame. And this plane was in no distress. And we know that because the pilot was in mid-sentence when they were cut off. And there'd be no evidence to suggest there'd been a problem before that. So he was mid-sentence when the plane apparently turned into a fireball. Now the evidence available to the investigators at Elba was pretty The plane had crashed into about 150 metres of water and it was going to be really, really difficult to get to the wreckage. And there was the usual sort of speculation you have at these sort of crashes. Some people said it was sabotage. You know, what other than a bomb could take down an aircraft that was this sophisticated? And the other ideas were the usual sort of aviation crash causes like an engine fire. And then things got a little bit curious. Autopsies were performed on the bodies by an Italian pathologist and they found no evidence of a bomb blast. But they did find strange injuries that happened before the victims died. These victims had terrible head injuries. Many of them had fractured skulls, and it was as if they were violently bashed against something. You know, what causes something like that? And then there were their lungs. Now, many of their lungs were ruptured. It was as if the pressure inside their lungs suddenly became too much, and they simply burst. So in terms of hard evidence and what caused the crash, there was very little to go on. These are the days before the black box recorder, which was invented incidentally by an Australian called David Warren in Melbourne, who was involved in the accident investigations into the comet. And it was with this background that Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister at the time, decided that something had to be done. So Churchill dispatched the British Navy to recover the plane from the waters around Elba. And it would be a mammoth and incredibly difficult task. The first thing they had to do was actually find where the plane was, and then they had to go 150 metres down in very deep water to retrieve all the pieces. And they did this, and they began taking it up piece by piece and bringing it back to the UK. And there in the UK, they'd built a wooden skeleton of the comet, and they began attaching each of the retrieved pieces of evidence to this frame in the proper place. So they're essentially rebuilding the plane piece by piece. Now, any of you who's a fan of the, the TV show Air Crash Investigations, this is a really familiar sight, seeing how, how people rebuild these planes after an event like this. But this was the first time people had done this on such a vast scale. So the team doing this investigating, they weren't only investigating what caused the comet failure, they were also inventing how you undertake an investigation of this nature at all. And then of all the fragments, they found the tail of the plane. And it provided some insight into the failure sequence. It indicated that some part of the forward parts of the plane were tore open before the back failed. Now they knew this because the air rushing into the open fuselage had slammed passengers' positions back up into the tail of the craft. And they found some of them still there. For example, a coin had been thrown into the tail so violently that it had left a visible imprint on the wall. Now meanwhile, the Comet fleet was grounded. And it had now been a while since one of them 
had flown. And this was obviously having a hugely damaging impact on the British Overseas Airways Corporation. So the commercial and political pressure was steadily mounting to put these planes back into service. Now at the time these planes had been examined for structural weaknesses and they had made some modifications to the planes. But the pressure to get them back into service was was absolutely huge. So within 10 weeks of the crash at Elba, while still not knowing what had actually gone wrong there, the comets were put back into service. But this decision would turn out to be a horrible mistake. You know, these modifications they'd done had not solved the problem. So now with a sense of deja vu, we're all going to go back to Rome. And this is the 8th of April 1954, just three months after the Elba crash and only 16 days after the resumption of flying and another comet had just taken off from Rome. It was flying between London and Cairo and Rome was one of its stops. Again, the weather was good. Again, a comet exploded in midair. Again, everyone on board was killed. All 21 people. And again, their autopsy showed the same horrific head injuries, fractured skulls and ruptured lungs. And this time the wreckage fell into the sea near Naples, into even deeper water, about a thousand metres deep, so a kilometre down, and it just couldn't be recovered. So this now made it even more important to retrieve the wreckage from the Elba crash, because this was probably the only evidence they were going to be able to get their hands on. But of course at this point, this crash was throwing up a really disturbing prospect. Did this crash and the crash at Elba, which were both mid-air disintegrations, have the same cause? And then people began to wonder, wonder about something even worse. Did both these disintegrations also have the same cause as the mid-air disintegration that happened in India during the storm? What happens if they made a mistake? Did the storm actually mask the true cause of that failure? Because it was now looking like there was some sort of fatal flaw in the design of the comet. So Winston Churchill took serious steps. He put a guy named Sir Arnold Hall, chief of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, which was based in Farnborough, in charge of investigating what went wrong with the aircraft. And Churchill told him to spare nothing in the quest to find out what had happened. They had to get to the bottom of it because the reputation of British aviation was on the line. So the Navy continued to retrieve the debris from around Elba, the investigators continued attaching it to the wooden skeleton, and all the evidence flowing in indicated that the fuselage of the plane simply tore itself apart incredibly violently. They were literally bringing back this plane in small pieces. So the team decided to investigate what happens if you take a pressurised fuselage, which these planes were, and allow it to rupture, just like a popped balloon. So they built a model, a one-tenth perspex scale model of the fuselage, and they included models of the passengers in the seats. Then they pressurised it. Then they ruptured it, and the thing went bang. And if you have a look on, on YouTube, you'll see videos of these things exploding. So what happens is, the pressurised air screams out of the bottle, the seats are tore up and slammed into the roof, and this explained the head injuries to the victims. They were, they were simply bashed against the roof. And this sudden depressurization also caused the lung damage. Now think about it this way, if the air in the cabin is pressurised and you're sitting in it, then the pressure of the air in your lungs is the same as the air in the cabin. But if the fuselage tears and suddenly depressurizes, then the air pressure around you is at a much lower pressure than the air inside your lungs. So this high pressure is enough to tear open your lungs. Your lungs are essentially bursting like an overblown balloon in the same way that the fuselage is. So this evidence pointed to the fuselage tearing itself apart because of this high internal 
pressure. But how could this happen? You know, the designers of the aircraft had taken great pains to take this into consideration in their designs. So the designers knew that the pressure in the cabin could get as high as 57 kilopascals during a normal flight. So they actually designed it to withstand more than that, 138 kilopascals. In other words, it was two and a half times stronger than it needed to be in service. And that was a significant margin for error. And each of these planes was actually pressure tested with compressed air before they went into service. So they'd actually pressurized them right up to 114 kps. That's twice the expected pressure, just to prove each and every actual plane had the required performance. So what went wrong? You know, they considered all these things, hadn't they? Well, Arnold Hall and the team had a theory, and that theory was metal fatigue. So if you're not familiar with metal fatigue or simply fatigue, it occurs when you take a piece of metal, like for example a piece of aluminium, and you apply a load so it's stressed. Then you relieve that load, then you stress it again and relieve it, and on it goes. Now the stress you're inducing is not enough to cause damage immediately, but every time you stress it and relieve it, you're applying what we call a cycle of stress. And a fatigue failure occurs when you apply the critical amount of stress combined with a critical number of cycles. In other words, stress and de-stress a piece of metal enough times and it will eventually break. And Hall suspected fatigue could have been the culprit for these crashes. Every time the comet flew, its fuselage was pressurised. Then as it landed, it was depressurized. Thus the fuselage was stressed, then relieved. So the comet experienced one cycle of stress for every flight. But the designers had actually considered fatigue in their design, and they knew that the pressurization cycle would happen on each flight. But the designers were of the view that only one cycle per flight wasn't an issue. Or at least they believed it was an issue that they were managing by ensuring that the fuselage could resist two and a half times the surface pressure. But was this assumption right? Was it possible that one stress cycle per flight could be enough to destroy the aircraft in a relatively short period of time? The investigation team decided they wanted to find out. So they decided to set up what was a massive experiment. They built a huge water tank. It was 34 metres long by 7 metres wide and 5 metres deep. And it took six weeks to build this thing. Then they retired an actual comet, stripped it out, seats, engines, until they were left with a bare fuselage and its wings. Then they put the fuselage in the tank with its wings sticking out the sides. Then they filled the plane and tank full of water. Then they began the stressing cycles. They pumped additional water into the fuselage to pressurize it to a level similar to what it would experience in service. They held that pressure, then relieved it and repeated. Then on the outside of the tank, hydraulic jacks flexed the wings up and down, similar to what you'd experience in an actual flight. So in this setup, in a three-minute cycle, they could replicate the pressurization-depressurization cycle that the comet would experience in one whole flight. And this would go on 24 hours a day, every day. They were essentially aging the aircraft 40 times faster than it would age in real life. Now, if the designers of the comet were right, it would take as much as five months to fail the plane in fatigue in this tank. And that was equal to about 10,000 cycles of loading or 10 years of service life for a real plane, which is what the original designers of the comet felt the aircraft could take before developing actual fatigue problems. But they didn't have to wait five months. Less than one month into the test, at around 3,000 cycles or 3,000 simulated flights, the tank controllers noticed a sudden decrease in the water pressure inside the plane. The plane had sprang a leak and was losing pressure, so the fuselage had failed. 
and it had failed at 3,000 cycles, or equivalent to 3,000 pressurised flights, not 10,000. And the planes that had failed in service had failed at an even fewer number of cycles. So the Elba aircraft had failed after about 1,290 pressurised flights, and the Naples aircraft, the one that had crashed near Naples, had failed at 900 pressurised flights. So all a lot less than this 10,000 flights assumed by the aircraft designers. So now they needed to have a look at this plane. So they began draining the tank. And what they found was shocking. Just beside the forward escape hatch was a massive tear in the fuselage. Now a crack had sprang from the corner of a hatch, grew rapidly due to the stress cycles, then shot catastrophically to tear a 2.4 metre long gash in the plane. And there were the telltale signs of fatigue where the crash had started. And this was all in a controlled experiment. So once this gash appeared, you know, it, it instantly released the water pressure in a controlled manner, which was the whole point of doing it using water rather than air pressure. They didn't want to blow up the plane. They just wanted to know where the, the damage would initiate it. But if this had happened in service, then the result would have been even worse because such a crack would have travelled much faster than the compressed air could have, could have escaped and the resulting cracks would have essentially tore the plane apart. But because they did it in a controlled manner, they could see how this crack had started and where it had, where it had gone. And when they took this information and went back to look at the plane that was coming piece by piece from Elba, they found exactly the same thing. As more and more wreckage was, was brought in from the sea, it all started to become clear. They began tracking the cracks on the wrecked fuselage. They, they literally followed them back to their origin. And their origin was at a corner of a window on top of the plane. And from this, they were able to confirm that the crack had started at the window and propagated. And once they got that far and identified where the crack started, they could follow the crack sequence on the plane. And at that point, you can really work out the failure sequence. And the failure sequence for this plane is truly terrifying stuff. Now, just imagine for a moment that you're a passenger on this flight. This is what you're going to experience. A crack suddenly rips across the fuselage rip, then tears off the top of the fuselage towards the front of the plane, basically leaving a gaping hole. There's a rapid depressurization and your seat is pulled up and you're flung towards the roof and your skull is fractured. At the same time, your lungs are probably ruptured. Now, mercifully, you're, you're dead at this point, so you don't get to witness what happens next. But the rear of the fuselage and the tail gets pulled off, then a portion of the wings, then the nose rips off. And from this point forward, the engines catch fire and what remains of the plane hurtles towards the sea. But why did this crack start? Was the designer's assumption correct that the plane wouldn't be susceptible to fatigue if it could take two and a half times the service pressure? Well, no, it wasn't correct. The assumption was wrong, and Hall and his team had just demonstrated this in the water tank. Now, there are a number of reasons why, and it all comes down to the details. You know, the first issue was that the plates forming the fuselage were riveted together. And where the rivets were punched into the metal, they create these little minor defects. And these defects really are the birthplace for fatigue cracks. The second problem with the comet was it had square-shaped windows, and the supporting frames for those windows were also square. And when you have a square-shaped window... You have corners, and stresses love corners, because they concentrate around them. So you get these stress concentrations at these corners. Conversely, if you have nice oval-shaped windows, this shape helps the stresses to flow around it, and they don't concentrate. So one of the problems with the comet was its square windows. In other words, the pointiness, if I can use a technical term, of the windows caused a build-up of high stresses, and these stresses, in combination with the existing rivet defects, generated the perfect situation for a fatigue failure. 
So fatigue had destroyed the comets, and it was a systemic issue. The entire fleet had a fundamental flaw. This almost destroyed de Havilland, and it set back British aviation dramatically. Now, they would design a new safe comet, the Comet 4, and it would do the first transatlantic commercial flight in 1958. So it was a success, but by this time, Boeing in the US had taken the lead in the development of commercial jet travel, and de Havilland would never really be able to compete with them. Now, there's an interesting side note to all this, so just please allow me a digression. There was a man by the name of Neville Shute. Now, Shute would go on to be quite famous for writing a novel called On the Beach, which is one of the most famous nuclear holocaust disaster novels, which is set in Australia. And he also wrote a novel called A Town Like Alice, which is also set in Australia. But Shute started out as an aeronautical engineer, who in 1922 joined an aircraft manufacturing company. And this aircraft manufacturing company was called, wait for it, the de Havilland Aircraft Company. Now, while he was there, he worked as a stress calculator, but he also wrote novels on the side. And over the years, he moved on to other companies. And then in 1937, he became a full-time writer. And one of his novels was called No Highway. And this novel was made into a film starring Jimmy Stewart. Now, let me be a literary snob just for a moment. No Highway is not the most impressive piece of literary fiction around, but it is a fascinating book. And it tells the story of a research scientist called Theodore Honey, who's played by Jimmy Stewart in the movie, who works at the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough, the very same place where the investigation of the comet took place. Now, in his research, this character, Honey, discovers that there's a fatigue problem with a new transatlantic airliner called the Reindeer. Now, Honey then battles with the technocrats, trying to make them understand that some of their planes could start falling out of the sky because of fatigue. And then the whole novel really centres on Honey trying to collect evidence of a fatigue failure in her plane that has crashed already, which Honey believes was brought down by fatigue, but is actually being blamed on human error. Now, I won't spoil the end of this if you actually want to go and read it, but the important thing is that Neville Shute was an aeronautical engineer, so he would have known all about metal fatigue. Now, you may be thinking that he was a novelist, but he wasn't the most inventive of novelists because, you know, he appears to have taken all of his inspiration from, from the comet crashes while he sat down to write this novel. It's, it's incredibly similar. But this is the crazy thing. The comet went into service in 1952, and the Elba crash occurred in 1954, but the novel came out in 1948, six years before the Elba crash. So Shute didn't borrow from the comet episode. Eerily, he foreshadowed it. And if that's not weird enough for you, in the novel Shute called his plane the Reindeer, which he says is a, is a fictional aircraft. But if you stop and think for a moment and think about the world's most famous reindeers, you end up with Santa Claus's reindeers. And of course you've heard of Rudolph, but the rest of Santa's reindeers were called Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, and Comet. Now that's eerie stuff. Or maybe not so eerie. So the Comet would have been on the drawing board at the time Shute was writing his novel, and he certainly was of the belief that some airliner in the future would crash due to fatigue. And maybe part of him believed that it could have been this new one that was currently under design, the Comet. And maybe he just picked the name Reindeer because of it. So it may not have been so eerie after all. But just to finish up the story of the comets, there there are two broad ways of viewing this 
this story of the comet crashes. You know, the first is a series of tragic engineering fears, and for the people and families involved, this is probably the only way you can honestly view them. But there's another view, one that goes to the very heart of engineering. We can't forget that the comets were a great lead forward in aviation, but so were the lessons learned from their failure. The lessons from these failures were a great leap in our understanding of how to design and build this new generation of, of aircraft that would, would essentially change the world. And people even say that Boeing took the lead in commercial jet development precisely because of the lessons learned the hard way by de Havilland. But these lessons only existed because they were diligently investigated. Doing a full-scale test of destruction on a real airplane was a pretty fall-on and serious commitment to finding out what actually went wrong. And what went wrong provides fascinating insight into the limits of engineering. Because what we're really talking about here is it really gives us insight into the limitations of our imagination as engineers. So while we have all the analysis techniques in the world, we can only really analyse and design for the situations we can actually imagine. You know, we see that the designers of the comet didn't imagine that one fatigue cycle per flight due to pressure depressurization could destroy their plane. But it could. So anyway, these failures broadened our horizons. And there's a wonderful line by an author called D.D. Dempster who wrote a book back in 1959 about the comet. And he said, and I quote, No aircraft has contributed more to safety in the jet age than the comet. The lessons it taught the world of aeronautics live in every jet airliner flying today. And now, if you find that sort of statement a little melodramatic, then the next time you're on a plane, take a break from the book or magazine you're reading, or the movie you're watching, or the podcast you're listening to, and look at the window nearest you. Notice that it's round or oval, and remind yourself that you're looking at one of the most visible reminders of the legacy of the comet crashes. Thank you.